0: My name is Michael, and I'm a female alcoholic, and I'm formerly known as Michael M- Um I used to be from Long Beach, California, and I just recently uh, moved to Augusta, Georgia, so I'm going through some major changes in my life. And I've been Mrs. Theodore for two months, two days, and three hours and ten minutes. <laughs> but he's coming. Anyway, um, I want to tell you a little bit about my husband. He's—I uh, want to tell you a little bit about my relationship. Um, I just—I—I I just deeply, deeply fell in love with this man, and uh, I fell in love with this man for all the right reasons. I fell in love with this man because he has a very kind, loving spirit, and I fell in love with this man because he has a passion for agriculture, man, an absolute passion for agriculture, He's a southern gentleman, and he treats me like I'm the first gift from God. And the interesting thing about this whole thing is, I really did think it was God for me to be single. I really thought it was God for me to be single. I have had not had a lot of um, a lot of success in the relationship department in my sobriety, but I had a very loving uh, A.A. sponsor who really believed in the institution of marriage, and I had a very loving Eleanor sponsor who really believed in the institution of marriage. And both of these women had programmed marriages. And I did get to see that that there were successful marriages in this program because a lot of the time I didn't think so. But anyway, I learned this from these women. And uh, every time I would have an unsuccessful relationship, I'd stop dating for like two years. I didn't date my sponsor and he said I'd start dating. And she laid down ground rules for me because she knew my uh, history. And she said, any man I dated He had to have a job, he had to have a car, he had to to have a place to live, and he couldn't live in his car. (laughs) So anyway, I tried a dating thing, and and I have to admit, every relationship did get better, but I tried a dating thing, and it didn't work, so I just stopped dating for two years. But really, uh, what happened to me is, when I started speaking speaking on the circuit for the last few years, I travel all over, and and I share my story, but I'm always with other speakers, that have successful marriages. It's just like everybody God was putting in my life demonstrated these beautiful marriages. And I started really paying attention and I started learning. I think God was just getting me ready. And I heard uh, a couple of speakers say about using the traditions in their marriage. And I heard another speaker talk about using the prayer of St. Francis. You know, that it's better to give than to receive. It's better to love than to be loved. It's better to understand than to be understood. You know, I used to go to these blind women's meetings and all they ever talked about was getting their needs met, you know. <laughs> so this is a whole new concept, and, you know, it's even just my mind. But as soon as I heard that, you know, I felt that that was right for me. And I heard another speaker that I, I really did love and it's my own. He talked about, I don't know, maybe 13 years of being a womanizer and doing all these things. And then he had to address that part of his sobriety. And when he really fell in love with a woman, his sponsor did not let them together. They could not live together. It really know it wasn't. And so I just started listening to all these speakers, and I, I really think the place of really wanting what they had. I really wanted what they had. And so um, I went back, and I did another little sexual inventory. And uh, in the big book, it tells me that I have to shape a sane and sound ideal for my future. That's, that's right. And so I did that. I wrote that out. I put it with my sponsors that for my future sex life, I wanted love and marriage. So anyway, this has been one of my uh, best years, but it's also been one of my hardest years. Um, this year I have had a major job change over a year ago. I had a major job change. I worked six years in the musical theater industry, and it was a very impressive job, and it was just lots of music shows. But the theater was in a lot of trouble, and so I started paying for God's me and I got to take it in China. And the first company I'd ever worked for that I worked for 10 years approached me and they offered me to go to of administrator of one of the retirement homes. And I have to tell you that I turned them down. And as soon as I turned them down, I just had a feeling that I closed the door and God woke me. And I had to do some inventory on it. And I'm just going to tell you what I found out. With 15 years of sobriety, I found out that I turned them down out of ego. It's much more precious for me to stand up for this speaker and tell you guys I work with movie stars than to tell you guys I work with old people. And shortly after I had done that inventory, this company came back to me and made a better offer. And since I would inventoried it, I was able to take steps. And I really thought that I had done God's will. And this job turned out to be one of the hardest positions that I, I've ever had. I absolutely love the seniors. And I have a real talent working with them, but that was just a little part of this job. Uh, I've never been so stressed out, I uh, started having severe migraines, I started losing my vision, I having migraines, I was losing my vision. We were bent in heads, I wasn't willing to lie to the state about certain things, to do certain things that I learned in outside tomorrow. I the kindest principles in all my affairs I could not them in the workplace. And uh, as, as a result of all this, um, on July 12th I was fired for my job. And it was absolutely devastating for me. It was absolutely devastating for me. I am um, one of those people who thought work was so important and part of my story is how I came up. You know, at 36, I graduated from high school and I continued school and had all these high-powered positions. And I truly felt like I was not worthy of showing at a podium in Dr. Connors. I had to show two 50 things right after that. And I just didn't know how you can do it. I've been so worthy of telling you, if you want that I have, do what I do, and you, too, can be hired of 15 years of sobriety. You know, I just, it was just devastating, you know, and um, somehow I managed to get through those talks. But now that I'm through this through the last few months, it, I can really see that this is the best thing that ever happened to you. You know, a lot of good things came out of it. One thing, the state came in and then they changed that these people cannot take advantage of these things for the season anymore. As a result of my working there, and I feel good about that. But then also that better sponsor. I, I didn't even know I was judgmental, but I was very judgmental and opinionated. You know, it's the women that I sponsored that maybe got fired or went out on disability because of stress. And today I feel, now that I've walked in with food, I can better, a- able, understand, and, and to sponsor better. and But best of all, this allowed me to spend time with the man in Georgia that I had already deeply fallen in love with. and It was a long-distance relationship, and as soon as I got married to know, as soon as I got married, as soon as I got fired, I was so distraught that he sent me an airline ticket to come up to the Georgia, just to get away from the situation for a while, because I was thinking of this company. To get away from the situation, just to end those decisions. But anyway, as soon as I got up there, we have a real loving relationship, We're real honest and open with each other. And he, he looked at me uh, right after he took me at the airport. And he said, you know, when you first told me that you were, you had been fired, my first instinct was to rescue you. He said, and then he said, but I am so afraid that I might lose you. You're the kind of woman that doesn't want to be rescued. And I looked at him and I said, you're right, I don't want <laughs> to be I am know a big difficult tells me if I quit playing God and I have a new employer and if I could do his work well that I'm always going to be taken care of. Now if he were to ask me that today, I would say, Well, that depends on who's best you. <laughs> so, anyway, um a few days after I'd been there for a few days, he asked me to move up there. He asked me to, you know, move up there and look for God. and um, because I had done my sexual inventory and because I was real scared that my goals were other marriage, I had to just tell him that I couldn't do that. I said, I'm an example of Alcoholics Anonymous today, and I just can't picture myself standing up at a podium and saying, my name's Mike, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm stacking up with somebody. You know, I said, I just can't do that today, and um, he told me that his ideal, you know, for the future of love marriage also, but it was just much teaching in our relationship. And I really agreed with him, and we did it in a very loving way. But I also felt the need to get back to California to be with my support group. And in the big way, it tells me that in these situations arise, that I should throw myself harder into working with others and to yield with me harder. And so that's what I did. I went back to California. I threw myself into working with others. I started looking for worse. And I wife right offered another job position, making 10000 more than the job I had. And uh, I had already had planned a trip to Georgia. This is a planned vacation, and I hadn't actually started that job yet, so I went ahead and, and I set my plan, and I went up to Georgia, and when I got there, it uh, gave This man was waiting for me at the airport with a bouquet of roses to propose to me to This is the first time in my life that I've ever actually been courted, proposed to, given an engagement ring, and had an engagement. I just never experienced things, and and, and I'm almost 50 years old, and I'm finally experiencing these things. And and I I, I just feel so gifted and so blessed. I do want to tell you that it was a short engagement. You know, um, he's. He's almost, I'm almost 50, but he's almost 60. Not a good idea for a long movie. <laughs> <age. laughs> <laughs> and, and plus I had a real hectic speaking schedule. I was speaking every weekend from September through November and so we had a hard time sitting again. It was August and I had a couple, couple weeks off but I had, we had a hard time sitting again and I had planned on maybe Giving up to my convention, some speakers in my place, I could get moved to California to Georgia. And one morning we both woke up and we made the decision that I could not do that. If I was to not keep my commitments, that would be putting this relationship before God and AA. And I know today's to, and I have done this several times, put things before God and AA, and it's very dangerous. For so The last six years, God and AA have come first, and he agreed with me. It's got to be God and AA and then our relationship. So anyway, um, when I fell to the George of Altex was almost 16 years ago, I had a full ninth education, I didn't know how to work, I lived on welfare, I was reduced prostitution and I was a thief, And all of that was before I took that first drink at age twenty five. And when I finally broke down and took that drink, I immediately went downhill. So <laughs> I
1: was
0: gonna say the little slow in the afternoon. <laughs> So as you can see, there's nothing in my background that's prepared me for speaking except for the fact that I am an alcoholic and, heart and heart, I try to speak from the heart. And I've always heard that alcoholic synonymous is when we get the heart, where the heart speaks and the heart listens. And I really want to welcome any newcomers, and I like newcomers to know that the absolute get an alcoholic synonymous is sober. It is not a speaker. And I am not an authority on AA. I'm just up here showing my personal strength, sense, and hope. And the things I say from the podium are the things that had a profound effect on my personal sobriety. I also like to welcome those of you who are not so new, but are having difficulty with this program. I saw a sign in a A. club that always gives me a lot of hope, and that sign says that you are not a failure unless you quit sign. and I believe that's true. So please, whatever you do, just keep coming back. But I was told early on in this program that this program is not for spectators. This is a program of action, and those actions are the twelve steps as laid out in *The Big Book of Alcoholics you know, Dr. Ball, one of our co-founders, said, "If you are boiling twelve steps into two words, those two words would be love for service." And before he said that, he said, "I want to emphasize the simplicity of this program. Let's not louse it up with Freudian concepts that are interesting to the scientific mind but have little to do with our actual AA work." And I see a lot of things getting in and out of AA today. They might not be struggling, but they're just in And what they do is they just complicate this very simple program. Now, in the big book, under Dr.'s opinion, it tells me that many types of alcoholics do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. So I'm here today to tell you that I'm one of those alcoholics. In fact, so is my mom. We both try to recover from this disease. The psychiatric at different times, so we went to the same psychiatrist. And of course, the result was no, but the good news is that today that very same psychiatrist is a silver member of Alpha
1: Hypnonism.
0: Now, my mom and I both tried to recover from this disease through religious effort, different times and different conversations, but the result was the same. And believe it or not, today that very same ministry that counseled me is a silver member of Alpha and I like to sit around and say, I think we build those things to drink. But the truth is, and to is the truth, my mom slept with the psychiatrist and I slept with the minister.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: my sponsor told me that's not exactly AA's idea, the spiritual experience. <laughs> but one thing I know for sure is that psychiatrist, that minister, and myself are perfect examples that AA works in everything still. A little bit about my background. First of all, I'm Irish, German, and Cherokee, and I'm illegitimate. And being born out of wedlock today is just not a big deal. But when I was a little girl, girl growing up, it was. And my childhood's pretty appalling for my mom's defense. I want to tell you a little bit about her childhood, because as bad as mine was, my mom's was worse. And this program gave me the ability to have a very loving relationship with my mom, even though she couldn't get thinking. And I lost my mom three years ago to cancer. And I had the opportunity to practice seven days at home. My sister and I brought her home. We had hospice come in, and my mom died at home and she actually died with a little bit of dignity. And I had the ability to get in bed with my mom, hold her all night, and just love her and her dictionary. And I had to watch this woman drink on top of morphine up until the day she's no longer And it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. But one thing I learned from the whole experience is that my whole life growing up, I was so focused on the things I hated about my mom, the things I didn't want to be like, but I missed all of her wonderful qualities. My mom had a lot of wonderful parties and I really missed her a lot today. But my mom came from Alpha al background, and when she was 13, her mother was murdered in a drunken brawl. A drunk slit my grandmother's throat. So that left my mom out on the street at the age of 13, trying to raise herself. At the age of 14, she had a first baby, she gave up her doctor and then she had me. And she did everything in her power to keep me. She later met this man, got married, had three boys, and we all moved to California. That married soon ended in divorce. my stepdad, moved back to Colorado. So that left my mom out in California trying to raise four little kids. And we were raised on welfare. We were raised in extreme, extreme poverty. Always having lights back, telephones turned off, always being a vicious, even sleeping in cars. And then I had to go with my mom's alcohol, I had to go to prostitution, I had to go to suicide chance. When I was 12, my mom got pregnant again. This time she sent my three younger brothers to live with their real dad in Colorado. Now my three brothers were my very best friends. When you're sleeping in cars and always being a vicious, you don't have a chance. your friends don't, my brothers, and my friends. So I feel like at the age of 12, I already had all these feelings that I later brought with me when I had synonymous. And those feelings were low self worth, low self esteem, not equal to, and just not good enough. And that was the direct result of all that poverty. The drunken psychiatrist pointed out to me that I had issues of abandonment. You know, I never knew my real dad, my stepdad run away, my three brothers run away. My mom's always trying to kill herself. And because of some other positive experiences, I was a fear-based person. I have always been afraid of people, places, and things. And the two very important things I learned when I got to the program about personality is that first of all, I learned that feelings are not facts. All those things I used to think about myself are not the truth, but best of all, I learned how to walk through fear. And I learned that every time I walk through fear, I'm actually exercising faith. And uh, the last few years, I've walked one of my biggest fears, and that's getting on airplanes. It took me 12 and a half years of sobriety to finally get on an airplane. And I used to say it's only an AA because that got me on those planes, but today I also do it for love. But <laughs> so first of all, I found out I'm not even afraid of flying. I'm afraid of crashing.
1: <laughs>
0: my sponsor told me I had to be clear on what my fear was when I was asking God to remove it. But I want to tell you about... Um, my very first convention that I talked at, it was a convention in Belize, Minnesota, and when I got that call I just <laughs> never didn't know what I was gonna to get to Belize. And my sponsor told me that I could not turn down any A repressed and so I, I accepted and I was just in such terror about having to fly. But I had to say a woman that was gonna take me to the airport, walk me through the chair and beat me on train. And as these little coincidences happen an emergency came out and she could not safe. She just got at the airport. And it is 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm at LAX alone in my head. And that is a very bad place for me to be. And I come from panic disorders anyway. And I started to put myself right into a panic, attack, a panic attack. I knew there was nowhere I was going to get on that thing. I started hyperventilating. My legs started shaking so bad that they literally would not hold me up. And I popped down the a chair and I finally started to cry. And then I finally started talking to my higher power. In fact, I even smuggled off a little bit to my higher power. And this is what I said. I said, Okay, God, how do you apply the principles of this program, this situation? How do you apply these principles for this situation? And just out of nowhere came that little inner voice and it said, Michael, why don't you get out of yourself and try and help somebody else? So I ran around the airport looking for a little ladies that could help with their And I scared a couple of them. <laughs> They're not used to being helpful in, in uh, Los Angeles, but I accidentally hugged one. Oh, bad idea! <laughs> but that's what I do today. If I'm in any kind of fear or any kind of anxiety, I look for someone else I can help with, it, in the program or out of the program. And it gets me through these situations every time. So, um, anyway, when I was 13, my mom did have this baby. And I had to learn how to be a mom, and I didn't even know how to be a kid. My mom's alcoholism took her out the home. She was never, ever around. And I had full responsibility of this baby. Now, this baby is sleeping in a dresser drawer, and I eventually had to potty train her, bottle, so I'm staying in school because I can't get to school because of this responsibility. Now, the two days after doing my inventory, I found out I hated school anyway. So when I was to school, I was an object of pity on my peers. I was always teased about very dress, and I was about my hair. And so specifically to get out of my home life, at the age of 15, I got married. And the man I married was 18. He lived in the neighborhood. He came from a similar background. And I have such a colorful past that I like to brag about this. I want to tell everybody here that when I got married at the age of 15, I was not pregnant. At the age of 15, I had high morals and high values. I really did. I had two TV shows I used to watch here, my favorite program, and most of you, are probably too and the but it was Donna Reed and Bob and <laughs> And because these were uh, family programs, I had these high morals and high values my whole life Growing up. All I knew is when I grew up, I did not want to be an alcoholic like my mom, and I didn't want to prosecute like my mom. So when I got married at the age of fifteen, I had this wild idea that I was missed on a reason when I missed the father Knows dad, and unfortunately it didn't come out that way. And I believe the man I married was an alcoholic. One of the patients his name is Johnny Walker. <laughs> I want to share a story with you about that sister of mine, the one who sat Because when I got to this program about alcoholism, I used to blame my alcoholism on my mom's alcoholism. I blamed the way I turned out on the way I was raised. And after I got children in this program, I took a good look at that sister of mine, because she came from the very same background. In fact, I would say her childhood was worse than mine because my mom's disease had to dead. And my sister was little, literally forced to move out of the house at the age of 16, so she took school to she moved out. But what she did is she took that high school pregnancy test, and she had to take it three times until she finally passed it. With this test, and the result, under special youth program, went through the city of Long Beach. At the age of 26, she retired from the city of Long Beach, took her 10 years retirement pay her to buy long business. She's later married the head traffic engineer for the series of Long Beach and three years ago, at the age of 30, my sister was awarded rewarded for me of the year. Now, even today sometimes, I still don't get it. Same mom, same background, but different reactions. And the difference is my sister's not an alcoholic. My sister is not bottling memory different from her fellows. My sister reacts differently to life situations than I do. So today I get to accept responsibility. You know, I can no longer blame people, places, and things. Yes, I am an alcoholic and I do have a disease, but today I have a solution. And for me, part of my solution is being accountable for my actions, my past actions, and my present actions. So anyway, at the age of fifteen I got married. At the age of seventeen I did have a baby. At the age of eighteen I had to get out of this marriage because this man took me to a whole new phase of alcoholism I never explained to my mom. And Paul took it me, and he never abused me unless he was thinking, but he abused me to the point of cutting me up with the knife, and I that failure to tear down me. So I got out of that marriage at the age of 18. And I feel like that's when I started on the road of doing everything I swore I'd never do, doing everything I swore I'd never do, and I hadn't even taken a drink of alcohol yet. I always intuitively knew if I took a drink I'd be an alcoholic. But it started out with me being a single, maybe living on welfare. My whole life growing up like that, I swore when I grew up I didn't live like that, and there I was. Now on page 23 in the big book, it says the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. So we're talking about the main problem being the mental discussion and not the physical allergy. So I know for me, I practice my disease with alcoholism way before it was that first thing because I have always had the mental this disease. I practiced it in the form of compulsive overeating. I would instead feed my mouth instead of alcohol. Then I discovered that wonderful world of diet pills. Now that's back in the day when doctors gave these really good amphetamines, and methadone, dexadone, it's illegal now. So I went on this diet for 16 years. When I finally received that drink at age 25, I immediately had the physical allergy. From that very first drink, I had the phenomenal surgery. From that very first drink, I had a personality change. Dr. Jeff and Mr. Hyde, you read about that in the big book, and the big book refers to that as a real alcoholic. And I personally am so physically allergic to alcohol that when I consume alcohol, I break out in the grass, welcome hides all over my body. I was always too drunk to have a treat if that wasn't normal, and if I would had a treat it wouldn't have made a difference. But from that very first experience I drank morning, noon and night, and I did not draw a sober breath from the age of 25 to the age of 31, and that is not an exaggeration. I had a huge spiritual experience when we started up with this program, and this was the same to the one that Bill had in Bill's story. And in the Big Book it says, as a result of spiritual awakening, you'll have a change in psyche, a change in attitude. The people have a huge emotional displacement on the advantage. And this spiritual experience I had was not enough for me to achieve that. And I believe it's because I did not have a time to go with it. But it was enough for me to come to believe that a power driven myself to destroy me to sanity. So what I did with this experience is I went to this church council with this minister. I told him all about my spiritual experience. I shared with an all my days to do so small in my first time. And this man assured me if I got really active in this person, I did all this inspirational booking, did all this positive thinking and all these affirmations that I could do everything that I ever wanted to do. After I got to this program, I heard a man named Patrick Seuss say, if You're alcoholics, alcoholic. You cannot think your way into right actions. He says, You're alcoholics, alcoholic. You have to act your way into right thinking. And I am absolutely pissed at because I got really active in this church. I even became secretary of this church, and I struggled reading those books because I could barely read. I did all that positive thinking, constant, constant affirmations, and the only thing that resulted was I ended up having a four-degree appendicitis, and it actually infuriated his wife. And the um, the rest of the congregation, the rest of the congregation wasn't too excited about it either. But the one thing I'm going to share with you now is the one thing I thought I'd take to the grave with me, if I could so take that trip, it was my job to handle the money. And when I handled that money, I stole part of that money. Now, at that point in my life, I knew beyond a shadow without my only hopeless God, because I had just had a special experience. I turned to for help, and I ended up seducing his minister and looking out his truth. So I clearly know that doing this hopelessness, that we talked about in this book. And I want to share a few stories with you while I'm on the subject of the ministry. And I like to share this first story because it's the first time I was ever able to have any kind of alcoholism. When I got to this program, I heard that laughter was the end. But I always thought my story was just much to true. And when I got here I used to hang out at the very back of the room, and I have a friend named Teddy. And Teddy calls the back of the room the half-naked section or the denial section. Now I didn't hang out back there for either of those reasons. I hung out back there because I couldn't read very well, and I was terrified that they would ask me to do something and I literally could not say the word anonymity for six months. So I'd always hide out hide out the, of the room and speakers would get up here and share their stuff and everybody would laugh. And at first I was absolutely incapable of laughing. But one day after I had some blood under my belt, I caught myself back to laughing too. But right after having this big belly laugh, I found myself thinking, that might be funny for you, but there is nothing. Absolutely nothing in my background that I've ever about that. And then about three years ago, I was speaking in Philadelphia, and it was just my second time to ever get across and my daughter wanted to come to me. Now my daughter got to this program for the first time when she was 16 years old. And before the meeting she got over some of her program girlfriends, we sat down and had coffee. And then my daughter proceeded to college girls, my bank and it's just the first time I was ever able to laugh at anything. For some reason, it was funnier coming out of my mouth than out of my head. But of course, he's telling these girls all about the minister. And, you know, I just never, ever thought about how some of the stuff looks to the eyes of little 9 year And she's telling these girls that I am dragging her to the church every day. She's learning things like the Ten Commandments, the Golden Rule, and constantly preaching all of this religious stuff to her. She comes home from school at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to open the bedroom door, and there, naked and bed with her mom, was sent made minister to the church. Now, when she first said this, I just felt all this shame, all this guilt, and I just looked at her. I said, God, honey, that must have been a terrible shock. And she just looked at me, and she said, No, Mom, I don't know what shocked me the most. that minister naked? Isn't he to get on the floor? <laughs> up <laughs> until that time I forgot he had this artificial leg and this was a big leg I don't know how I forgot it <laughs> but starting this man and no way disabled
1: I'm embarrassing myself
0: <laughs> after I got to a face adult I started working with 12 steps I found to me the most important step was step nine. Now, step nine is the immense step, of step restitution. And I recommend you do the first eight steps before you get to step nine. I know some people come into this program, they take a look at step nine, it's so scary. They turn around and they leave. Other people come in and they start right in on step nine and there's inappropriate amend. I believe the steps are an order for reason and I believe this one indicator should be the advice to sponsor. But I call step nine the freedom step. This is the step that truly frees me from the bondage of my past. And it's just not a coincidence that in the big book, there's promises come after step nine. And it's basically halfway through when you're the in freedom and then you the happiness. It says you won't regret the past, but we to shut the door, and so on and so on. And I did not have to wait to get halfway to step nine. That happened to me with my very first demand and that was going back to that church and calling that minister I used to steal from the church fence and he told me he knew that and I set up a payment schedule to pay back to the church. Then I had to find that I used to scale out of the cell his wallet and he's in the cell. He told me he did not know that. <laughs> so I made restitution to him but the new thing about this experience is he shared with me at that time he knew exactly what I was doing. By the time I got to him he had two years of sobriety in the program of Plus Nine Anonymous. When he lost his leg in that motorcycle accident, he was an alcoholic and a drug addict, and he actually died on the operating table. He had one of those near death experiences, which for him was his spiritual experience, and that's what led him to minister school and becoming a minister. Yes. And even he could not get sober in church, and I'm not putting down pictures. And I'm not putting down a psychiatric effort because the big book about personality makes it real clear that this program owes a lot to both of these institutions. And in the big book, it says, if you need professional help, do not hesitate to seek it. But I have to tell you, for me, that it it's all about that miracle that happens from one drink to about to another drink. So I've been picked out of this cake. I'm 27 years old. I'm full on into my drinking. I'm... Uh, Living in an apartment and being addicted son. this is my normal and I'm always being addicted. Light staff has been turned off for a long time, but I still had a telephone. It. it was one of my priorities. And I got this call eleven o'clock at night and I could not believe the man on the other end of this phone It was my real dad. Now I knew this man's name was on my birth certificate. And he wanted to make amends for not being my life. He wanted to get to know me and he wanted to get to know my daughter, so he offered me an opportunity to meet Colorado to get to know his whole family. And I didn't want to go. I didn't have any desire to get to know him. But mostly I didn't want to meet the snow. But at that point in my life, I didn't have any place to go. except for Alan out on the streets. And just down inside, I would have this little hope. If I did this geographic, maybe I could change. So I made that move to Colorado, and I lived there as a free man. And in that free man's case, this man and his family did not wait to I to Colorado. In that three months period, I ended up having a fair six stuff started on the day getting pregnant, having an abortion, falling down the stairs and breaking my legs, breaking off this medicine cabinet, looking off this food cabinet, and looking off this money. So they were literally took me off the car rattle. Let me tell you how I broke that leg. Obviously, I was drunk. And in my neighborhood, the liquor stores closed itself. So I had to make my final liquor run before the store closed, and it's snowing outside. The stairs are very icy. I live in a second floor apartment. So I'm hanging on to the building with my right hand, trying to get down these stairs, and my daughter's on the left side of me, trying to hold me up. (coughs) All of a sudden, I looked up at another second floor apartment, because the door had just opened. And out of that door walked the priest. I have no idea what he was doing there, but he had the collar, the robe, everything. He's definitely a man of God. Now, I'm very angry at God. I'm angry at God, because I just seduced his minister and ripped off his church, so now I'm mad at God. And I looked up at that priest, I let go of the railing with my right hand. I flipped up my middle finger and I said, "F you, God!" and I immediately fell down the stairs and broke my leg. Now my daughter tells me that's the day she started believing in ancient God. <laughs> and today we both know it's because I was drunk. But anyway, my real dad was second on my list of men to make my I wrote this man a letter. I told him that I was sober in the program of auschwitz I wanted to make restitution for my behavior up there. And I sent him a check trying to set up a payment schedule to pay him back. And basically what he and the family did is they sent me a check back to a little note that said they didn't want my money, and they never wanted to work me again. However, I stayed sober that I really did want to see even man. So on every Father's Day and on every birthday, I'd send him a card, and I would tell him that I was still sober in the program of auschwitz and I still wanted to get restitution for my behavior up and he would never ever acknowledge me. And I did this for years and years and years. And in nineteen eighty five and nineteen eighty six I finally got a reply back. And I just cannot tell you how excited I was. And I started returning after I found that envelope. And I just opened the envelope and the only thing that was in it was a picture of his tombstone and the display of the newspaper. He had just died. And that was the family's way of telling me not to bother crying anymore. And there are no words to express the kind of thing myself. Um, All the people in Alcohol Snod in the cell, when to me that I don't make a name for a the tells me I don't make a name to be forgiven. I make a name to clean at my side of the street. I make a name to stay sober. So all I can tell you is that the actions I took, which is not once, not even once, if I've ever attempted to bring over that rejection. I'm just so sorry you didn't get to know the person, because I know it been has. Soon i have been kicked out of the church, and now I'm kicked out of the state. I lived back in Long Beach, California, Street, from Franklin Junior High. Now Franklin Junior High is a gang-related school. My daughter's now 14 years old, and she's running with a very dangerous gang. I'm doing awful hell when birth against my daughter. But I'm not only embarrassing my daughter, I'm embarrassing this entire gang. I was living in another part of my family that took my life and telephone had all been turned off for a very long time, and I'm hiding out from the landlord, so I always kept my doors closed. My apartment's dark. My apartment's always dark, and it's so dark that now I'm seeing evil spirits. And unless you've these they are hard to describe, these evil spirits would do things like chase me around the house, and then I in turn would do things like crawl out of the house on my hands and knees, detonated, across the street to the school ground, and warn my daughter and her grandparents not to come home to help us protect the evil spirits. And this is the kind of stuff I did that makes me wish to God I was a blackout drinker. <laughs> but I'm not. I get to remember it all. All my neighbors felt sorry for my daughter. They would hide her out sometimes. Sometimes they would feed her. Sometimes they would feed me. We went to a bulk next week and we to talk to the both of us. And on our town, she had a bottle of hundreds of vodka. Something happened outside of my Something My neighbor and my daughter went to check it out. I just wanted to drink some of that vodka down real fast enough. not get hot. So I just grabbed the bottle, I started drinking right out of the bottle, and I don't know how much I drank and how fast I drank it, but I do know it was enough to stop my respiratory system. At that point, I stopped breathing. I can remember the sensation I couldn't breathe. Last thing I remember, I don't remember the paramedics, I Don't remember being rushed to the hospital. I don't remember being resuscitated. By the time I had any memories. I woke up strapped down to a hospital bed with a nurse slapping me in the face because I was seeing out, Kennedy, Daddy. You saw very mean and violent. But this experience did get my attention. This time, I had almost died under the influence of alcohol and it me. I did not want to die out there, so I finally started listening to my daughter. My daughter used to tell me on a daily basis, she would say, Mom, it's the alcohol. If you wouldn't drink, you wouldn't do those things. She said, that smoke hot. So, this is my only experience smoking pot. But I was trying really hard not to drink that day. Don't have any friends of my own, so I smoked this pot with my daughter and her friends. And afterwards, we're walking down the street and I had on these tight, tight jeans. I had both my hands in my pockets. And I don't know if I took over a class or my own food or what, but I took. And I just started to go down. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been on pot, but for me it was different. First of all, I had the feeling that I was in slow motion. I had the sensation that the cement was coming up at my face, and no matter what I do, what I did, and I tried really hard, I could not get my hand out of my pocket. So you have to picture a grown woman, laying with her face, smashed in the cement, both of her hands are still in her pockets, and everybody standing around me crying hysterically. They were absolutely hysterical. And I really hurt myself. <laughs> I really hurt myself and I'm laying there in pain and I could hear everybody laughing. And as I heard that laughter, I had that moment of clarity. Right then and there, I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that pot was not the answer. And um, I went right back to my drinking and I drank at the same page for a while longer. And I don't even know what finally happened, but I finally reached the point in this program that you hear about But I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I woke up one morning on my front room floor I was in a puddle of fluid and I don't know what the fluid was right. But I took the first three steps and I didn't know what the first three steps were. But I knew that I was powerless over alcohol and that my life had never, ever been manageable. And I already believed that a power is greater than myself to first destroy me to sanity. I just didn't know if he would because of what I had done to escape. And this is my way of putting my will and my life over to the care of God if I just got on my knees and I just said, God, please. I don't care how you do it. But please, just get me it. And I imagine telephone. I called a prayer line that I was affiliated with the church I was in. And I asked them to pray for me. Because in my mind, I thought if God didn't listen to my prayers because of what I'd done to the church, maybe he would listen to their prayers, And they prayed for me for 30 days. And within 30 days, I was sober. And how that happened in that 30-day period, every day I was hard not to drink, and I just could not not drink. I could not not drink. And every night I'd end up drinking. I was so physically sick from the girls, and i was so full of fear. On one of those days, I decided I'd go over to my mom's house. Why my mom? I don't know. My mom's practicing alcoholic. But one thing I haven't told you about my mom yet is that my mom had to get sober in the program about testimonies and it did not work for her. And the truth is, my mom did not work the program about testimonies. She would do that at step. The first step, the 12th step, no steps in between. And if you talk to my mom about getting a sponsor, she would challenge you and she would say, where in the big book does it tell you to get a sponsor? So consequently, my mom never did get that much sobriety. But a series of coincidences started to happen, and I called them job from then. There was this man who was the of Signal Hill. He just happened to be driving by my mom's apartment. He just happened to remember her from years ago when she was in her He just happened to stop and try and call her into the only a meeting, and she did not want to go. She didn't want any part about helping on her. So he started working on me. And I didn't want to go. I hated Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew this program didn't work. I never went to a meeting with my mom, but I watched her book in and out for years. But the real reason why I didn't want to come here is because my mom ran around with a lot of AA men. I never once saw my mom as an AA woman, only AA men. Today I know it's called 13 stepping, And I was very young at the time, and they do this 13 Step right in front of me. But two of my mom's AA boyfriends did fantastic at that man, and so yes, that's what I thought about being in our And I think our actions out there are very important because we might be the only copy of the book somebody comes in contact with. But this man treated me with dignity and treated me with respect, and he talked me again to that meeting. And I was so physically sick from withdrawals, there's no way I would have made that meeting without a drink. I ended up having two years before the meeting, and that's the last thing I ever had, and that was on my to in 1979. But I don't celebrate my birthday until three months later, because when I got to this program, we had uh, one old timer. Let me talk a little bit about the old timers first. The old timers now have come with the ones that got me sober. And I had some male old timers that lapsed on to me, and thank God for them, because they changed my opinion of me. But they latched on to me, and they—I only had a couple of sobriety. They were dragging out the prisons and institutions and hospitals. I think they knew they'd lose me if they didn't get me into action. But um, we had this one old timer, and if you mentioned the word drugs, he would stand up, hush you out, tell you to go to any, and then would split. So I learned early on in my sobriety to keep my mouth shut about those diet pills. So what that did is that allowed me to take diet food for three more months. But when I quit drinking, I started working my steps. And it leads to me, working my steps, God revealed to me right away. I was not sober if I was using those pills. So I gave those up three months later. So I celebrate my birthday, January twenty third, 1980. So anyway, going to my first AA meeting, a little bit about the old timers first. The old timers now have found that the have gotten us And I had some male old timers that latched on to me, and thank God for them because they changed my opinion again. But they latched on to me, and they was, I only had a couple of sick and They were dragging me out to prisons and institutions and hospitals. I think they knew they'd leave me if they didn't get me into action. But um, we had this one old timer, and if you mentioned the word drug, he would stand up, cut you out, tell you to go to N.A., and they would split. So I learned early on in my sobriety to keep my mouth shut about those diet pills. But what that did is that allowed me to take diet pills for three more months. But when I quit drinking, I started working my steps. And it leads to me, working my steps, God revealed to me right away, I was not sober if I was using those pills. So I gave those up three months later. So I celebrate my birthday, January 23rd, 1986. So anyway, going to my first AA meeting, (coughs) I've got two beers in my system now, so now I have Ah, uh, it's a tiny bit of a going on. Okay, I admit I'm an alcoholic, but I'm not an alcoholic like like you guys. You guys are alcoholic like my mom. It's the disease of perception, but I believed it. And the first person shared that he'd been a blackout drinker. I looked at my 14-year-old daughter and I said, I have never had a blackout. The next person said that he'd been to jail looked at my daughter, and I said, and I have never been to jail. And the truth is, I was a home drinker. I was always too drunk. to Get out of my house to go get arrested. And when I crawled out on my hands, and knees towards the school ground. The gang members caught me and put me back to bed. But the third person that shared said that he had five 502s. Now, back in California, 502 was a drunk driving. I used to be in to service, but I'm not anymore. And just had to see me. I was so defiant. My aunt just talk like this. And word for word, I said to my daughter, I said, okay, that does it. I have never, ever had a 502. This time, my daughter looked at me with all the hate, all the contempt, a little Al-Anon have in her eyes, and word for word, she said, Mom, you don't even have a card. But <laughs> <laughs> so when she said that, something clicked for me. At that point, I knew I was sitting there looking for the differences. So if any of you are new or nearly new, I hope that you're not trying to judge your alcoholism by my actions or any of the speaker's actions. And I know I have a story that's hard to identify with, but maybe you can identify with the feelings. Maybe you've had those feelings of low self-worth, low self-esteem, not equal to, and just not good enough. Maybe you've had those feelings of overwhelming fear, and this is the kind of fear that paralyzes you. It keeps you from going back to school, it keeps you from getting a better job. It did that for me, but it also kept me from getting on elevators, to drive over bridges. Couldn't drive over, get on freeways or airplanes It literally made my world real, real small. I used to have severe trans attacks behind my fear and sobriety. Or maybe you're like that alcoholic in the big book, grandiose and better than. To me, it's always changed for an alcoholic, it's just that my evil was in reverse. But the next person that served was my friend of identification. And I believe if she had been in that meeting that night, I wouldn't be standing here tonight because of my attitude. But she said that she didn't drink till later on in life. He said she practiced her to way waiting for ever at that first drink and she did it in the form of compulsive overeating and infetting reviews. you. That's when that old time event up in her out. But the one thing she said, and this is the real reason why I stayed, she said her whole life growing up, some kids wanted to be doctors, some kids wanted to be lawyers, and all she ever wanted to do in up was just not to be an alcoholic like a mom. And when she said that, I just started to cry and I couldn't stop. Because that is absolutely the first time in my life that I've ever felt like I've long. And I'm supposed to share with you what it was like, what happened to change me, and what I'm like today, and what happened to change me through the 12 steps of our hearts So I always talk about the steps. I'm not telling anybody how to do them, because I believe when you're ready, God's going to put the perfect sponsor in your life. I'm just going to tell you how I did the steps. So I want to talk about two other things first. And one of them is um, the fifth tradition that says group's primary purpose is to carry the message, because in one of my favorite that today is now very opinionated and judgmental. And in my opinion, this tradition is being a lot in meetings. I'm hearing everything except for the message. And uh, I heard a tape of the very first international where these traditions were introduced. and They had six speakers and each one shared on two traditions. And the speaker that, that shared on tradition five said, what, are the, what is the message that we're supposed to ever to carry? And then it's just a message that talk about the whole So that's why I try to always talk about the set. Another thing I want to talk about is the word sponsors, because of my mom's attitude about sponsors, and the business not trying to go out and get a sponsor. And I'll tell you where I got my little bit of information. I got my little bit of information from Bob Smith, Dr. Bob's son. And I had uh, a wonderful opportunity to spend four days with him, and a lot of real quality private time. And I've pumped this man. to everything I could get out of him. And he uh, he was seventeen years old when Bill and Bob got together and so all those meetings that were happening in their home in after, he was you know, he was around it all. And he said they always had sponsors. The word sponsors comes from the Oxford group and that's where we get our sessions and where a a broke off from said I uh, had to be sponsored into the Oscar group, so they always had sponsors. And when they wrote the big book, they wrote the big book to go out into the world where there was nobody to ask to be a sponsor, you know, if it went on west coast or into another country who would get to be a sponsor. So they wrote the book so that the book would work for everybody. But he said that um, that Bill called Eddie his sponsor until the day he died and Bob called Bill his sponsor until the baby died. And in the big book in the third edition there that you will see the word sponsorship. It is on one of the stories but it's on page two ninety two. And it's about the first alcoholic in Chicago to get this program. He went to Akron, did his best and took the program back and started it in Chicago. But on that page where he uses the word sponsorship, he's talking about Dr. Bob's taking through the steps, and there were only six because they were steps from the oxygen group. And then and but they also took the actions of six, seven, and eight when they did the moral inventory, and he says that he was every AA had to have the benefit of this type of sponsorship today. So that also leads me to believe that, you know, the real job of the sponsorship is everything accepted to the program. But anyway, I had a woman in my life uh, that made me do those first three steps in a formal manner out of Big book. As soon as I heard those three steps, I knew I'd done them on the front room floor, but she didn't care about that. Maybe did it out of And we did it, and thank God I had people that were willing to help me read because reading was very difficult for me. And we did it by reading the preface, uh, the three four words, Dr. DePanion, Bill's story. There's a solution, more about alcoholism, is impacted to the agnostic and how it works. He got on her an knees and said that first step, prayer. And the most powerful thing to me about that prayer was the part that said take away my difficulties. It did not say difficulties with alcohol, it said so difficulties because to me that meant God to take away all my difficulties. She had me studying the big book, page sixty-four to the end of the chapter, where it's getting very specific directions on doing my inventory. If you just look at that diagram, it's confusing, you have to read all those pages, and on that very first page, it says, Though your decision meaning step three is a vital and critical step. It could have little from effect unless at once followed by strenuous effort to stay and be rid of the things in our thoughts that have been blocking us goes on to say, look, this but a symptom, we had to get down to causes and conditions. And uh, my sponsor said that at once meant, you have wasted your time at the first three steps if you don't, you immediately start on step four. And I've been to book study since then, and I was in uh, one book study, and it was pointed out that the key word is decision. Step three is only decision, and the way you follow up on the decision, the way you ask to turn your world in your life over to the care of God, If you take the actions of four and nine, and how you continue on a daily basis, turning your will and your life over the care of God as you live in 10, 11, and 12. Within those pages, I found out I had to do three inventories. I had to do an inventory on resentment, I had to do an inventory on fear, and I had to do an inventory on sex. And after you do those first three columns, you're reading in the pages, especially to resentment, says now you have to go back to those resentments and look at it from an entirely different angle. Now you have to look at your parts. And it's very specific about your part. so says, your part selfish, dishonest, selfish, and frightened. When you get into the sex inventory, it goes in the word inconsiderate. So my sponsor had me incorporate all that into 4th time on my inventory. And she told me because this was my inventory, I had to list everything I felt guilty about. And she had me do that under resentment. I had to say, I'm resentful at myself because I'm a thief. How did it affect me? What was my part in it? And then I went on to step 5, sharing my invitation, that he's going to and, um, you know, I've done some work since the from the Church, I really have, but that felt the worst because I felt like I was a God in the back, and I didn't think I could ever share that with another human being. But I found for me that step five was not about embarrassment, and it wasn't about sin. Step five was all about humility. And in the twelve and twelve, is the most perfect definition of humility that I've ever heard, it says humility is a clear recognition of who and what we are followed by a sincere attempt to that we can be. When I did step 5, I did five, six, seven, eight 8 all at one time. My sponsor did not trust me to go home and contemplate on my own place. And he said, She thought it was her job declaring that to me, an and it's a good thing she did, because I can honestly tell you I would have missed this one. And she told me was number one top of my list that I had self-pity. And I told her in the most pathetic way that I thought my self-pity was justified Look at my childhood. And she told me the most loving way. She said, Michael, alcoholics cannot afford justified self-pity. And then she gave me that old cliche, form me, pour me, form me, and let me drink. We got on our knees and we said the 7 step prayer. And I can honestly tell you today that self-pity has been totally renewed and it's been replaced with overwhelming gratitude. On step eight, I began three columns. First column is short from minutes that I could do within six nights. Second column is long term amends that eventually took me twelve years because I had a lot of heavies out And third column is we worked out ways and means of making restitutions and institutions I couldn't get hold of or maybe people that were deceased. And on step nine my sponsored screen. It did not matter how long it took me to do step nine. As long as I was willing and doing whatever I could. But she said most importantly, while doing step nine, I still had to live in ten eleven and twelve And I love cut seeds. This program is about uncovering, discovering, and discarding, and to me, step 9 is the discard step. I know there's a lot of good psychiatrists and psychologists out there today, and I, a lot of them in 12-step programs, but I have to tell you that that was not my experience. I went to a psychiatrist and a psychologist way before I ever got here. We spent a very long time in uncover, discover, never once got on with discarding, and what that did is that allowed me to stand that victim role for a very long time. And I don't even know how this stuff works. All I know is in the big book. it says I have to disregard the other man's faults entirely. So when I made amends to my dad, I never once said that you were an older, married man. You got my teenage mom pregnant, and you abandoned us. I never once said that to him. I just made amends to him for what I had done. And for some reason, my resentment towards him went away. And I don't know how that works. I don't have to know how it works. I just have to know that it does. My father taught me to do spot check inventory for step ten when I know I'm in, in the loan. I I'm immediately do two nine on it. But she believed as in a business inventory should be done in writing, so at night before I go to bed, he had to pass up a balance sheet. And on one side I look all my assets for the day, and on the other side I all my liabilities for the day. And liabilities are increased to defects I got into. But she believed because I came from low self-esteem that it was important for me to be aware of the things that I do right. I always have more assets than I do liabilities. I, I get to look at myself in a whole new life space. On the 11th step, I do my former prayer, meditation, and warning. And now that I'm married, my husband and I get on our knees together. And we don't get on our knees for any, we believe God listens to you no matter what position you're in. We get on our knees because we want to be in a place of feeling humble. So we go and together and we say the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, we pray for God to direct our thinking. We pray to be divorced and self-feed kind of self taking motives and we pray to know God's will and the power to carry that out. Then on my own I do a form of meditation where i try to a different job. Not once in that meditation has God ever come down and told me But as a result of that meditation I intuitively uh, know how to handle situations throughout the day that needs to happen. My sponsor really distressed the 12 steps, and she broke it into three parts for me. That first part hadn't had a spiritual awakening as the result of the those first 11 steps. he said, did not necessarily believe in evolution God. He said, a lot of us believe in God when we get here. Some people come in hand they have to make the 12 steps a higher power, or you make the group a higher power. She said, when you've had that spiritual awakening, is where you've actually had that huge emotional, displacement and rearrangement. You've had that change in psyche. you've had that change in attitude. Something does seem just different. You've had a transformation and it comes from deep within. And when it comes to training message, if I have 15 days of Friday, I'd give my phone number to someone who has seven. And she said length of time was not the requirement for sponsorship in this program. She said the requirement for sponsorship in this program is that you have been accept. Because the real dollar of a sponsor is the guy you do accept the program. And I had two men in my life that were, were really instrumental in my sobriety. And not breaking their anonymity, which is how they like to be identified. It was all and Frank Honeycutt. They were brothers. And Frank used to always ask me how I was doing. You know? And I was, at the point where I was working with him so much, I felt swirly. I was always swirly. I said, like, wow, I just feel so, so swirly. And um, first of all, my father said that I had to stop using the word swirly. But at that point, I completed step eight, and I wasn't into step nine. And that's how I felt. I just felt free. And so I told Frank things like, I, I think i got to do some more writing. i got to work on myself some more. And he said, for God's sake, Michael, don't study yourself. He said, what you have to do is get out of yourself and work with another alcoholic. And so I get it's strange today what Frank thinks it's strange to me because I sponsor a lot of women in this program. I sponsor some that I call whiners. And I can talk about whiners because I used to be a whiner. And they just whine about everything. You know, they've done this stuff, but they're just into whining. I mean, every day stuff that we all go through, they just whine, 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 whine. And I'll just do them what Frank used to do to me. I'll always try and bring them back to the steps. And I'll always say, are you working with any other alcoholics? This is the normal reply. Well, nobody ever asked me. Well, if all you do is whine, no one's going to be attached to your program. So what Frank told me, Frank said, nobody ever asked you. You just go to a meeting and you watch for the newcomers that stand up with less than 30 days. The newer the better. You go up to one, you say, do you have a sponsor? If they say no, you say, I'm hit. They're brand new. They don't know they have a place. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm here today to tell you that that doesn't work. <laughs> Another thing I do is when I go up to a newcomer and I give them my phone number, I always get their phone number because it's hard for newcomers to call, and I'm telling you, if I'm in a bad place, I call the newcomer. I don't know if it helps the newcomer, but I know it helps me. Applying these principles in all my affairs, that means I have to practice loving service at work, I the to practice loving service at home. I can't come into this program, walk that walk, talk that talk, and then go out in the world and act like a jerk. And my sponsor knew a lot about Bill W. and she told me right that she said that Bill do not like same anymore twice that types of defects and shortcomings are the same thing, they're both the exact nature of the wrong step five, that we get from step four, and that principles and steps are the same thing. So if I'm applying these principles in all my prayers, I'm applying these steps in all my prayers. And she told me if I am going to go through on spiritual lines, and I stay current in my steps, eventually someday God will reveal to me, and it's time to give up other destructive behaviors. The book said we have to get rid of all those old ideas. He told me it's not okay for me to just not drink, but to go ahead and still. It's not okay for me to just not drink, but to prostitute. It's not okay for me to just not drink, but to abuse my no daughter. It. And it's not okay for me to just not drink, but to binge my brain down to take diet hold. He said if I was in the last part of the twelve steps in and it says things are not okay. But thank God, he told me I didn't have to do it all at one time, or I surely would have failed. But all those things I just mentioned were listed on my steps. It's my character defects. I don't practice any of those today. Like I said, now I have new character defects. I'm just now I'm so But I'm working on that one too. But anyway, so I have six months of sobriety. I'm on my ninth step, This woman told me I had to get a job. I had to be fully self-deported to my own contributions, and I don't know how to work. And I went out there and I got that first job, and that's where I learned how to work. I learned things like how to get there every day, how to get there on time, how to not move early how to only take a 30-minute 30 30 minute lunch break. I did not know how to do those things, and I learned it here in Alpeshawna. I stayed on my first job full-time for eight years. I was uh, there for another two years part-time after I took another full-time position. when I left that job, I worked myself up to a different And in that first eight-year period, I went back to high school. And I graduated from high school in 1985, and I was 36 years old. And I graduated with a cap of down a real ceremony, and 458-year-olds. <laughs> and all these kids, they were really bad kids, but they were kicked out of day school, four students, night school. If so I just get right in there again. I want to share with you uh, how I got into my price defects right after I got that first job. First of all, I wrote my program according to the Big Book about Outposts Moments. When I get into the Big Book, I feel something spiritual. I feel that power that works to be done that takes um, if I want to feel an immediate power of God, I read the 3 forwards. That's just how that book affects me. I do not get that feeling when I read the 12 and 12. But I like the 12 and 12, there's some real good stuff in there. And in the big book, there's only two paragraphs on Step 6 So I feel Bill must have known I was coming out like Anonymous, so he had to be a little more specific on courage to do that. So he wrote Step 6 and the 12 and 12, just for me. And he held me on my to be said. He said, "Breathe to the point of being at sea. He said, Blatten to the point of being your health. And then he said, God will not render you white as snow without your cooperation. And then he said that the man that repeatedly works on his other defects of characters rose in the image of its And thank God he addressed the fact that some of these defects of characters were part of the removal alcohol. He said alcohol is not a natural instinct. So when you're really ready, God can just remove it. They said, some of these other defects of character are natural infants dying enough, and they're just harder to remove. But anyway, that led me to believe that I couldn't just sit around and wait for God to remove these defects. I had to help him a little bit. Like that defect of healing. I had to stop healing long enough for God to remove the infection. And that was a hard thing for me to have it for me to heal. And I would kept myself at work going through uh going to take the test. and all of a sudden I'd turn to you, I'd take his hand, pull his hand back, and I'd talk to myself. I'd have to say, Michael, you don't do those things today. He's trying to work an honest program. And I can honestly tell you, I have not stolen anything since I've been in the program. I've come very close, but I haven't stolen anything, and today the exception has been me. I can't believe I was ever that person, that I was. But the one defect I did get into was my defect of fear. I was afraid God couldn't provide me with the money I needed to get to and from my brand new God. So I prostituted myself for the last time, I and I was six months sober, and I hung on that set. When I got back from that, and I just can't tell you that a sick, overwhelming feeling I had, and I was in tears. And all of a sudden, that sick, overwhelming feeling went away, and it was replaced with a spiritual experience. I had an inner voice talk to me a loud enough as clear and it said, Michael, this definitely is not God's will for you. If you just look at the program about document commandments. You apply these principles in all your affairs. You will never ever have to do this again. God will always give you what he means when you need it. And that has been the case for me. Since that day I've not once had my life's back telephone turned off, I've not once been evicted. In fact, I used to say I'd not much in any place. (laughs) That's not true now. But today I drive a brand new car. I have a fabulous four bedroom house in Augusta and a five bedroom beach house in Edgeville, South Carolina. And today I don't even have to work. My husband's very financially secure. And that's another defect I have today called (laughs) pride. I just get real upset about him taking care of me and all through my by the I've been self-sufficient. I used to tell people I was self-sufficient, but when you're unemployed, you realize that uh, now I'm self-sufficient. I was having a hard time believing God was going to take care of me. But I've I got to show this to you. I did something stupid that's been bothering me, and I want to work. He says, honey, you can work if you want, but you know, you might take this opportunity to do something you've always wanted to do, like go ahead and get the college degree and all this stuff. But I'm just so resistant to him giving me money. And I can't deal with my own bank account. I went to the bank to, to do some money, and she goes, Mr. Girl, your husband put $500 into your account. And I said, I need a job. i got to put money into my own account. And then I said, and I don't even know how to cook. And I just I told my husband that. And I said, so I'm I'm going, what is this all about, you know? And I had to write inventory on it. And that, when I came out, it was the defect of false pride, that false pride. And I'm telling God, telling God how he should take care of me, that I need to work. And right now that's just So I don't know. You'll have to talk to me next year if I went out and got a job. I don't know. <laughs> so for the next year, six years, I um, went to work in a the musical theater company, and I was not qualified for this job. But for some reason, they were willing to hit a chance on me, I decided to be willing to hit a chance on them. I went back to school, and within a period of time, I worked myself up to a business manager, small is multi, multi-million dollar corporation. And as business manager, I dealt with millions of dollars. And when I got into this program, I didn't even know how many deal for a million dollars. And I participated in union negotiations, and I got invited into some of the homes of some of the most famous people you see on stage, screen, and TV. And today I'll see myself in a picture with a very famous person, and I still get overwhelmed, and I think, how did I ever get from the gethers of Long Beach to be invited into some of these places? And how that happened is I worked the last part of the 12 steps. And I applied to the principles in all my affairs. And I feel so when I start here, I'm going to close and apply 10 to 10 of the God I have in my life today. I told you that, um, my daughter was 15 years old when she got to this program. When she was 18 years old, she had two years of sobriety. She and her girlfriend were leaving in a dance. They were in the parking lot of the dance. A man came out to him with a gun and forced against a girl whose heart went to her and who could not the one girl unconscious and brutally raped my daughter for over two hours and I absolutely hate the word rape because it sounds like it's just about sex but rape is really about terror and it's about violence. And the whole time that this is going on, my daughter knew he, came to he was so angry at God. It took her two years to remember that she did this quite third And this man was drinking the whole time he had a bottle of alcohol in his pocket and so he got, <coughs> got quite drunk, thank God. And when he was forced into the front of the car, somehow my daughter got the courage to at least make some kind of an effort to try to save my life. And caught him off guard, stuck in the safety car, he pulled his stick. he fell down, the gun fell out of his hand, and she ran down the ship naked, he got away. And at that point, um, <coughs> he got back into the car, rolled the other girl out of her seat and to the car. So both girls left. But the road of recovery was real hard, and it was real long. My daughter and I felt absolutely betrayed. How could God let this happen to us? We were both sober in the program that i How could God let this happen to us? We were working just as hard as we could on this big social program. But the hardest thing for me to deal with was a sentence in the big book. It was one of my favorite pages. I used to tell people to read it all the time. It's page 449. And it talks about acceptance. And I still love the part on acceptance, but that one sentence says, Absolutely nothing in God's world hasn't done mistakes. And says alcoholism is a disease of perception. I'm still an alcoholic. I still get my disease of perception. Because I perceive that to mean that if nothing in God's world hasn't done then that had to be an act of God. It had to be an act of God. And I wanted to leave alpha channels and I wanted to leave God because I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt. I didn't want any part of a God that me like that. And thank God for this man when he don't further. He just took me by the hand and he said, Michael, God is good and good is God. And if it's not good, it's not a God. He said, Man has free will. That man is acting on his free will and your daughter is just a victim. He said, If man didn't have free will, we would all be sitting in a meeting about this, not unless we'd all be perfect people. And when he told me that, I had a skill for relief. And I needed to tell you truth. And I love to hear my sponsor, Paul, share. She always talks about finding God truth within. And that's what it says in the big book. It says we find God truth within. And on that same page, it says it may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things. And when I'm into the fear, and I'm into calamity, I feel disconnected from my higher power. And that's when I so desperately, desperately need people in Alcoholics promise. Because if God speaks within me, then God speaks within me. And it's at these times that God will reach out to another member of this program and pull me back into the sunlight of the Spirit. And that's what happened to me for Emmanuel and If So I came to come with my God again, but I still had 10 minutes filled with that, 10 in the big book. I could be standing here and Listen to somebody in the poll talk about something wonderful, say that sentence, and I would feel absolute rage. I sponsor a lot of women in this program, especially because I do so much speaking and traveling. I sponsor a lot of women that have suffered terrible, terrible tragedies. And one of these women made the mistake of telling me that her tragedy must be God's will because in the big book it says absolutely nothing God will have in my face. This woman desperately, desperately needs comfort. And I went off on her like a crazy, crazy woman. I started screaming at her. That wasn't written by the first 100 alcoholics. It's not in the first 64 pages of the big book. I took that book. I slammed it down. I said, that's not even an first edition of this book. I said it a lot louder And I made this one try. And I knew at that point that I was one who had a problem. I have a resentment about something in the big book. And this resentment's not only hurting me, now it's hurting other people. So I came to a place of really being willing to give it up, and I prayed for a very long time for God to help me with that sentence. And about two years ago, I was with my sponsor Paul, and she was just speaking to me, and she was sharing about a case out by Clancy, and it's not even an AA case, it's possibly a bunch of doctors or something. But the name of the case is Alcoholism, Disease of Perception. And right in that meeting, when she said Disease of Perception, I had the biggest spiritual encounters that I have ever had. And I couldn't see another thing in the room, and I couldn't hear another word Paul said. I had an inner voice talk to me, was loud and clear, and it's not to the ears. But it said, "Michael, you know what happens in a meeting with al mind. It's part of God's world. What happens when you're working those 12 steps? It's part of God's world. The progression of all good is part of God's world. What so happened in that car nine years ago was part of man's world. And when I was able to separate man's world from God's world, I was able to come to terms with that sentence in the big book, and I couldn't stand here right now and tell you absolutely nothing is God's will happened by mistake. That's how I got to the program at Takes Genomics. Uh, two weeks after I had that circle experience, through a real weird circle of coincidences, I found myself sitting down at a dinner table, having dinner with Dr. Paul who wrote that sentence in the big book. And I was at such peace I did not have to tell this man all about my resentment. Because I knew at that point it did not matter what he meant when he wrote it, What mattered was I perceived it. And sometimes I have to work on my perception so that perception can work in my life. And that might not work for you in that book, but I truly believe that God works for each one of us at our own level of understanding. I want heard, if you take one step towards God, God takes ten steps towards you. And in this lifetime, as we know it, we will never, ever reach God's level of understanding. But once we're on a spiritual path, God does not want to lose one of us. So He comes to each one of us, meets and works for each one of us at our individual level of understanding. And that's why what works for you might not work for you. And what works for me might not work for you, but the beauty of our personalities will what get rolled up in the telescope. Anyway, since that day that man heard my talk, we've had lots of spiritual talks, we've talked at lots of conventions together, and today I consider to this man my spiritual advisor. And what he told me about that sentence, he did not mean anything like that when he wrote that sentence, he was not thinking of man's inhumanity to man. He said my spiritual experience was the best explanation he could think of. As to why evil is in this world. And I am so thankful I paid attention to something I read in the 1212 and the steps It said the it strength of pain and time. Because when I found out this man was alive, I used to think everybody in the was dead. When I found out this man was alive, I cannot tell you how many countless times I sat down and started to write him a letter and tell him exactly what I thought about him. I and mean, exactly what I thought about that thing. And if I had followed through on that, I would have missed out on this gift, because today he was to this man is in my life. And he gets lots of phone calls about that thing, so he gets lots of letters about that thing, and what he does today is just giving my phone number. <laughs> 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 anyway, I want to thank you for allowing me to be here. I know today I've been catapulted into what Bill calls that fourth dimension of existence, because today I know happiness and peace but best of all, and I mean absolutely best of all today, I may be are born. Thank you.